Have you noticed how angry everyone is these days? Is it just me? People are angry on the streets, throwing their fists up in the air. People are angry in their own homes. People are angry at church. People are angry online. Now listen, this is not a biblical command by any stretch of the imagination, but if you know me well, you know that I consistently remind you of this. You don't need Facebook. You don't need social media. It is a poison that for some reason allows people to say and do things to other people that you wouldn't normally say and or do. And all of the anger that everybody is experiencing in their personal lives, anger at politics, anger about driving and traffic, anger about other people, angry about what other people think, it all finds its way onto social media and it just further increases our division from one another and our angst and antagonism toward one another. Why is everyone so angry? Why is it that every time you turn on the TV, you see somebody angry with somebody else? Jesus, in this sermon, the greatest sermon that has ever been preached in the history of humankind, the Sermon on the Mount, has just made a staggering and remarkable declaration in verse 20. Look at it again. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That is an unbelievable statement in the ears of the crowds that are sitting at Jesus' feet right here in this text. Why is this so astounding? Because in the minds of these crowds, it was the scribes, the scribes were those who copied and who knew the letter of the law backwards and forwards, inside and out. It was these scribes along with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders, the ones who meticulously sought to observe all of these laws right down to the very letter of that law in the most minute of details. The crowds looked at the scribes and the Pharisees and thought, these are the most righteous men in the nation. They were the ones that everyone looked at when, they try, when trying to understand what righteousness before God actually looked like and what it actually meant. The only problem, according to Jesus, not even these scribes and these Pharisees were righteous enough. So what hope does that leave anyone? When Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you can just imagine the people sitting there this day saying, well, if that's the case, then who can be saved? And there are a number of people who look at this and think that Jesus is creating some sort of scorecard or report card here, right? So the Pharisees and the scribes, they keep 90% of the commandments, which means that if I just keep 92% of the commandments, that somehow I will be more righteous than them and it'll, my righteousness will exceed theirs and therefore God will let me in. That is not what Jesus is doing here. He's not saying that your righteousness, righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees in a quantitative way but in a qualitative way. 
The righteousness that Jesus demands is of such a different quality than that of the Pharisees who sought to win the affections of God by their works and by their deeds. The only problem, one of the problems is that the Pharisees distilled all of the laws that were supposed to govern them down to laws that they themselves could follow and therefore feel good about themselves and righteous when in reality they weren't even coming close to following the rule and the, in, and the intent of the command that God had given. See, the scribes and the Pharisees here all fell victim to a common human problem. It's a problem common to every one of us. It's a weakness in every one of us. It is a fault that is present in every one of us. The need and or the desire to justify and elevate ourselves in both our own eyes and in the eyes of everyone around us. Every one of us has this fault and this weakness present inside of us to some varying degree. And even worse, they, the scribes and the Pharisees, much like we do, justified and elevated themselves in their own eyes and in the eyes of others, all the while continuing in the passions and the desires of their deceptive and duplicitous hearts. What hypocrisy, right? You and I are all in the same boat, friends. This is an all-too-human inclination. And this all-too-human inclination has been a thorn in the side of biblical interpretation for millennia. Now, what do I mean by that? I mean that every one of you, along with myself, knows how to evaluate how to define, how to interpret, and how to modify the commands of God given to us in Scripture in such a way that we feel justified, that we feel good, that we've either kept them or obeyed them. Or we are masters at modifying the commands of God to such a degree or in such a way that we can say to, say to ourselves, well, this one doesn't apply to me. This command doesn't apply to me. My situation is different than that of the ones that Jesus gave this command to. Here's an example. We are especially skilled, aren't we? All of us are especially skilled at holding on to bitterness, holding on to unforgiveness, holding on to anger, and then reading the teachings of Jesus about these things without guilt while holding on to and refusing to forgive. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 18, for example, 34 and 35. These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ himself. After telling a parable of the unforgiving servant, he ended it by saying this. In anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Do you hear that extent there? To every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. How can we read words like this and define or interpret or modify God's word to allow us to remain in, settled in, hostility and unforgiveness? The extent here applies to everyone. 
Or how about Christ's words in the next chapter of this Sermon on the Mount? Chapter 6, verses 14 and 15. You can just flip it over, you'll see it. Jesus said, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Isn't it amazing how many people claim to be forgiven followers of Christ who yet hold on to unforgiveness while somehow at the same time convincing themselves that these very clear words of Jesus do not apply to them. And I've heard every excuse in the book. Jesus knows my situation. Jesus knows how I was treated. He knows what they did to me. He knows what they said about me. As if that means that it's okay to harbor and rest in unforgiveness. It is not. And sometimes I can only watch in disbelief when someone decides to leave a church because they are angry or bitter with another believer. And all I can think about in those moments is how will you ever be able to sit and worship our Lord in another congregation How will you be able to convince yourself in spite of God's clear word on this issue that everything is all right? How can you sit there when a preacher comes up and opens God's word and says, unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven? Listen, if that's you, if you are settled in some sort of anger and bitterness and unforgiveness and you have convinced yourself that it is a justified bitterness, a justified anger, a justified unforgiveness, you are both deceived and deceiving yourself. You have corrupted God's clear word on the subject and your very soul is in peril. You are guilty of manhandling the Word of God in much the same way that the Pharisees of Jesus' day had. But why do we do this, right? Why do we do this? Why do we consistently practice such duplicity? Why do we work so hard and labor so hard to justify ourselves in our disobedience? Why are we willing to go so far as to, so as to adjust and temper God's word to fit our preferences, to align with our sinful pass, pass, passions, and to allow us to continue on in our sinful dispositions to the degree that some will even claim that God permits or God encourages or God accepts deeds and thoughts and words that are so clearly condemned in his word? Why do we try so hard to rationalize and defend our so-called goodness before the Lord and others as though, as though the scripture does not from the beginning to the end reveal the exact opposite? You know what scripture reveals about you and me? That we all, every single one of us, apart from Christ, are totally corrupt. We are all prone to deception, both 
externally from the world and the devil who both seek to conform us to their wills and also from, from inside as well. We are so prone to deception internally from our double-dealing, underhanded, and devious heart along with our flesh. You know, that part of us that fights against holiness, against obedience to the Lord. It is this ever-present and all-pervasive tendency to exalt and justify ourselves all the while interpreting God's law in ways that allow us to continue living the way we want to live that led the Jews in Jesus' day that led the scribes and the Pharisees, the ones that the nation looked to to model righteousness for them, the ones to whom God had graciously committed His law. It is this ever-present human tendency that led them to misinterpret and corrupt that law's original intention and meaning. And so Jesus, in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, will undertake or will take on the task of both clarifying and correcting or clarifying the law and correcting the centuries of Jewish scribal and rabbinic interpretations that had developed around that law. They, the scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, like the rest of humanity, in an effort to justify and elevate themselves, both confused and manipulated the original intention of God's law, a law that aimed at addressing so much more than simple prohibitions against things like murder and adultery. You think that's all the law was designed to address? No. And so Jesus begins in this Sermon on the Mount by clarifying what must have seemed like the most obvious of laws, right? The easiest of the laws to actually obey. You shall not murder. Seems simple enough, doesn't it? So he clarifies in verse 21. Look at what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, semicolon, see that? That's important. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said to those of old. See, there's some confusion as to what Jesus is actually doing here. I've heard many actually teach that Jesus is somehow correcting the Old Testament. He's correcting the law of Moses in this Sermon on the Mount. However, that does not make any sense given what Jesus has just said before. Remember last week when Jesus, we read this in, the, in the, the, the few verses before, Jesus said he had not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now, would it make a ton of sense for Jesus to declare that he had not come to abolish the law and that not a dot or an iota would pass away from that law just before proceeding to correct that law. No. The law of God is perfect. The law of God needs no correction. 
What, it does, what does require correction, however, are the oral traditions of the rabbis. Traditions and interpretations of the law that had been passed down for generations and generations and generations. Traditions and interpretations that the peoples were taught in their synagogues from times of old. The average Jew had been fed a healthy diet of tradition. And you got to know, most of these Jews did not have a copy of God's Word in their homes. And so wherever they heard it, when they heard God's Word, it was in the synagogue. And a lot of times, most of the time, it was the oral traditions that had been passed down by the rabbis and the interpreters of Moses' law that they had been hearing. And far from clarifying the meaning of God's law, these traditions and these interpretations only served to obscure its true meaning. So notice what had been handed down. Look at the text again. You shall not murder, semicolon, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So what you see here is a combination of two Old Testament texts. The first, you shall not murder, is one of the Ten Commandments, right? That is the Ten Commandments as given by the Lord in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and repeated again in Deuteronomy 5, 17. And it is a full stop statement. You shall not murder, period. But look at this text that we've got here. It's not a period. It's a semicolon. You see, the interpreters of God's law, rather than leaving the command as it is and letting it flower in the minds and in the hearts of those who would labor to understand it, what they did was they immediately connected it to Numbers 35, verses 30 to 31. This passage in Numbers was specifically dealing with the difference between the act of accidentally murdering somebody and the act of actually premeditatedly murdering somebody. You see, if someone accidentally killed someone, they could flee to one of these cities of refuge that God had, been, had set up. That's what Numbers chapter 35 is dealing with, these cities of refuge. And they could run there and be protected from the wrath of those who had been angered by your accidental killing of their loved one. But if the person actually murdered somebody else in a premeditated manner for some personal reason numbers 35 verses 30 and 31 declares this if anyone kills a person the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses but no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness and you shall accept no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death but he shall be put to death and so the Interpreters of God's law, the interpreters, uh, the, rab uh, the rabbis, sum that down to whoever murders will be liable to judgment. So, the rabbinic tradition of connecting these two texts together, rather than letting the commandment, as revealed in Exodus chapter 20, uh, letting that commandment stand on its own, it might not seem to us like a big deal. But it is a big deal. Because connecting the two effectively robbed the command as given in Exodus 20 of the extent of its meaning. By putting these two texts together, the command to refrain from murder became nothing more than a simple prohibition against the act of murder alone. It all became about the negative component of the command. So, anyone who hadn't actually killed another person like literally 
took somebody's life might look at that law and say, you know what? I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't taken anyone's physical life. I've kept that command. I'm keeping that command. You know what? I'm doing pretty well. That right there is the heart of pharisaical religion. Look how well I keep the law. So the scribes and the Pharisees, the interpreters of the Old Testament, they did this. They limited the meaning of the law for a number of Old Testament commands. It wasn't just this one because Jesus is going to address a bunch more as we work through this text. Instead of focusing on and, in, and, and identifying the entirety of a given command's spirit or intent, they focused on the letter of that law only as if God's command not to murder or not to commit adultery or whatever other command there was were simply prohibitions against that actual, committing that actual deed and nothing else. But the law of God has always been designed, was designed to convey and command so much more. Along with the actual negative command not to murder or not to commit adultery or not to whatever, fill in the blank, the command also aimed at a positive outcome, meaning it aimed at bringing the hearer to positively assess the state of their hearts, to identify and to put to death and to eliminate or seek to banish from your heart anything that might, if left unchecked, lead to the outward act being prohibited in the command. If it's murder, if the text says do not murder, then the call is for us to root out anything that might actually lead us to murder. If it's adultery, the command also takes into account that the human would, take, would, would eliminate everything that might lead you to the act of committing adultery. Because, listen, let's not kid ourselves. Let's just be real here. It is in all of us to break any and every command in Scripture. Every single one of us. If the conditions are right, the stressors are right, the situation is right, the opportunity is right, and the state of our hearts, if it all just lines up just right, every one of us would be capable of committing the most wicked and heinous of sins. From murder to adultery. And this is why it is so dangerous this is why Jesus is so clear about the dangers of rabbinical teaching in this day. This is why it is so dangerous to look at a command like this and simply think, I've kept it. I haven't murdered anyone. Because all you've done is follow in the footsteps of the rabbis who misinterpreted, tortured, and disfigured God's law so as to think, you know what, I'm pretty good overall. Here's a good rule of thumb for everybody. Be careful never to interpret or define God's law as given to us in Scripture in such a way that you or I can feel good about ourselves for having kept it. You hear that? Be careful not to interpret or define God's law as given to us in Scripture in such a way that we can feel good 
about ourselves for having kept or obeyed it. I haven't murdered anyone, so I'm good. No, all we've done is convince ourselves that we've kept it. And when that's the case, hear me clearly, you are in danger. Take heed lest you fall. Never reduce the law down to points or aspects that you are keeping. Always let the law perform its function. And what is the function of the law? To reveal how desperately you need Christ. How desperately you need the salvation that he so freely offers to everyone who turns from their sin and believes in him. Let the law continually remind you that you aren't good, that you aren't perfect, that you are always in danger of falling into or committing sin. And so you must always be on guard. Look what happened to the Pharisees, right? They thought they were keeping this law. They felt pretty good about themselves, didn't they? And Jesus declared that they were deceived, that they were nothing more than whitewashed tombs that might have looked pretty on the outside, but inside were nothing, were filled with dead men's bones. And listen, at this point, they were probably thinking to themselves, I've not murdered anyone, I've kept the law. And yet, by the end of the Gospels, who is it that has Jesus put to death? Who is it that breaks the command that they think they were following? Even when they interpreted it in their favor, they couldn't keep it. Don't be afraid of coming to grips with this undeniable truth. You and I, apart from Christ, are wicked sinners. Way worse than we could ever imagine. I like to bring this up a lot because I'm a huge fan of the great Charles Spurgeon. And he used to say, you know, one of the ways that we could eliminate anger from our lives is by recognizing that you're way worse than anyone says you are. And so if someone comes to you or if you hear that somebody's been slandering you or if somebody's been gossiping about you or somebody's been saying something terrible about you, what you need to do is say, they don't even know the half of it. I'm way worse than that. And if we were in that place where we came to grips with this undeniable truth that we are wicked sinners apart from Christ, we wouldn't get as angry as we do. Instead, we'd focus on the fact that our God is so gracious and our God is so merciful and our God is so loving, so much so that he sent his one and only son into the world so that if I believe in him, wicked sinner that I am, I can be delivered from the penalty for my wicked sinfulness. Jesus would bear in himself the penalties for my wicked sinfulness. And what is that penalty? Eternity in hell enduring God's righteous wrath. Jesus came to deliver me from that. And what I need to recognize is that I am wicked enough to deserve that. I'm way more wicked than I could even begin to imagine that I am. And so I am so inflamed with love for this God and Father who would gift me the wonderful blessing of abundant and eternal life, enjoying Him forever. So, 
While the actual prohibition of murder is encompassed in this command, it doesn't stop there. It goes so much deeper as Jesus reveals in verse 22. Look at it. Verse 22, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So Jesus here presents himself as the authoritative interpreter of the law. He is, after all, the one responsible for the giving of the law, right? And is, therefore, the only one who can truly interpret it, truly clarify it. And his clarification of the law here extends to the intent of the law to deal with our hearts. So look at it. To whom does this law apply? To whom does this command apply? Look at what Jesus said. Everyone. You see that word there? Everyone. Do you note the absolute tone that is used by your Lord Jesus Christ? Everyone who is angry with his brother. Meaning, if you are at this moment angry with your brother, holding on to anger against your brother, which is the tense of the text, which is right now, experiencing anger with a brother, this applies to you. I repeat, this applies to everyone who is angry with a brother or a sister right now. Anger in this context means hating, resenting, holding on to bitterness and unforgiveness, feeling and remaining in a state of animosity or hostility or opposition or aversion toward your brother. And while we are, according to the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, so far as it depends on us to live peaceably with all, that's Romans 12, 18. The words of Jesus in this text, in our text this morning, focuses on the brothers. Do you see that word? The brothers. Meaning, our fellow believers, our fellow countrymen, if you will, in the faith, our fellow disciples, our fellow followers of Christ. Jesus here in this first statement in verse 22 reveals that while the Pharisees might tell you that you are only liable to judgment or liable to the death penalty at the hands of the civil authorities if you actually commit murder, Jesus here uses the same phrase in reference to anger. Do you see it? He uses the phrase again, liable to judgment. Meaning, it applies also to anger in the heart. If you are angry with a brother, you are in danger, liable to judgment. Meaning, anger in the heart, especially towards a fellow believer, is, according to Jesus in this text, as terrible and as wicked in the sight of God as the act of murder itself. And it is deserving of the same penalties as murder. Harboring the sin of anger is a foul and evil deed and it must be put to death before it flies out of your heart and actually puts another person to death, either literally or, as we will see, in the destruction of another's reputation by either insult or slander, which is where Jesus will go next. 
Anger held on to is the beginning stage of an outward act. This is exactly what we see in Scripture. And don't kid yourselves, it's in every one of us. You remember the historical event that occurred between Cain and Abel, right? When they both brought offerings to the Lord, and Abel made his offering in faith, and his offering was acceptable to the Lord. The text tells us that the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but Cain did not bring his offering in faith, and so the Lord did not have regard for Cain's offering. And so we read in Genesis chapter 4, verse 5, Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So you see what's happening here. Cain was angry with Abel. And the Lord warned Cain, there is a sin that is lodging itself in your heart, Cain, a sin that seeks your demise. And you, Cain, must battle against it. You must fight against it. You must marshal your forces to end it. Don't let this murderous intent of your heart go out to murder somebody else. You must murder it at the source. Otherwise, it will kill you. So what did Cain do? Did he put it to death? Did he strive to be at peace with his brother? No, he let that lodged sin fester and boil to the point that one day, according to Genesis 4, verse 8, when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. But let's just say that you are here in the, in the sanctuary this morning or you're watching from home and your anger against a brother hasn't actually led you to murder anyone or to slander anyone. Jesus here reveals that the command, you shall not murder, teaches that you aren't righteous simply because you've avoided the deed of murder. Because murder here is widened to mean the angry disposition of the heart. So, even if your thoughts never make it to this most wicked of sins, actual murder, they are still a violation of God's law, the intention of God's law, and you are liable to judgment as a result. Hear this clearly. This is a serious situation. There's a reason that this subject comes up over and over and over and over again in Scripture. It is a serious, one of the most, if not the most serious thing in Scripture to remain in anger against a brother. And Jesus proceeds to address those in this text who, while not actually murdering somebody, allow their anger to pour out in any sort of expression of contempt against their brother. Look at what he says in the next clause of verse 22. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. This also is an exceedingly serious violation of the divine law of God. 
Note again the absolute term. Whoever. There is no getting out from this. There is no wiggling out from under this. There is no justifying yourself in this. Whoever. Everyone who insults his brother. You remember the old King James, if you've got it? Use the term raka. You remember that? Anyone use the King James? Anyone's just like, my, my version says insults. I remember raka. It's an obscure word, a term of insult, a term that you will see if you're using the New American Standard that, says, that means they interpret it as, you good for nothing? Or you empty-headed fool? You airhead? Any of those are legitimate interpretations of that word. The idea that is that it's a movement from the internal disposition or emotion of anger held onto against a brother to the actual external act of insulting or speaking angrily to them, both of which are violations of God's law. Holding the anger and expressing that in some sort of condemn, condemning or insulting tone is bo are both violations. Insults here, according to Jesus, are a form of murder and they are sinful. And while we might not be actually ending someone's physical life, Jesus declares that the insults that we speak are also, look at the text, liable to the council. Do you see that? Liable to the council. What does that mean? Slandering or insulting one of God's precious children is to slander or insult the Spirit of God that lives in that precious child of God. Therefore, it is virtually indistinguishable from the same as of similar gravity as insulting God himself. And such a deed is blasphemy. And it is liable to the council. Council here means the Jewish high council, the Sanhedrin, and the penalties that were set forth by that council for the murder of another person or for blasphemy was the severest of sentences that you could mete out. Death by stoning. Again, anger against a brother or sister, insults springing out of that anger are as serious as murder itself, according to Jesus, and these are liable to judgment and liable to the council. You see, for the average Jew hearing this, they would have thought to themselves, you know, I, I would never be summoned to sin before this Sanhedrin to undergo death by stoning for assailing a fellow Jew with insults. In their minds, much like our own, they were so far from having broken this commandment that you shall not murder. But Jesus here corrects them and he corrects us of our faulty understanding of the seriousness of anger in the heart and contempt for a brother or a sister expressed in word. Anger in the heart, however, does not stop simply at the liability for judgment before your civil magistrates, which is what the first line intends, or the Jewish Sanhedrin, which is the, what the second line uh, uh, intends. Jesus makes it clear in the next clause that murder, whether it's by insult, by deed, or by anger in the heart, is far more serious than any of us could imagine. Look at the next clause in verse 22. 
Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now many read this and think that Jesus is identifying or explaining some sort of ascending scale of insults and anger, some of which is liable to judgment, some of which is liable to the council, and some of which is liable to the hell of fire, but that's incorrect. The idea here is that all, all of our undealt with anger and bitterness and hostility towards a brother, all of our insults and all of our words of bitterness against a brother or a sister are worthy of every level of judgment. Every one. Remember, the Jews here were taught that only the actual act of murder made one liable to judgment. But that's simply not true, said Jesus. Anger in the heart makes one just as liable as having murdered another. Whoever says, you fool, or you idiot, or you moron, according to this text, will be liable to the hell of fire, says the text. If you have the HCSB, it'll say hellfire, or if you have the NASB, it'll say the fiery hell. The word here is Gehenna, or the final, the place of final judgment for the unrepentant wicked. Are we grasping the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here? Are we grasping the seriousness of this issue? You might say to yourself, well, I haven't killed anyone. That's the wrong way to think about this issue. Instead, hear the words of our Lord in the text this morning. Are you angry with a brother? Are you holding on to that anger? Do you let your anger against another overtake you? Does that internal anger ever make its way out of your mouth in words of bitterness or hostility? If so, you are in danger. Deserving of every penalty prescribed for the actual murder of another person. You are in danger right now of being consigned to the flames of hell as a result of your anger. To hold on to anger against a fellow believer is always unacceptable. No exceptions, no justifications, always. And for those who maintain it, Scripture has much to say to you, all of which ought to terrify you into dealing with it. First, hear the words of Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Scripture is clear, right? The angry might look around at their brothers and sisters and declare, you are a fool. But the opposite is true. It is those in whose heart the anger is lodged that God in his word describes as the fool. Is anger lodged in your heart? Don't be a fool. Leave it behind. Or hear the words of James, who counseled the readers of his letter in verse, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, saying this, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James knows well the human heart. 
It is so easy for us to convince ourselves that our anger against one of our brothers is somehow righteous. However, once again, it is untrue. It is self-deception of the highest order. Your anger, my anger against a fellow believer does not produce the righteousness of God. Instead, it puts us in danger of hellfire. And the Apostle John, in, in one of his letters, 1 John 3.15, declared this, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And, if you know, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And later in chapter 4, verses 20 to 21, if anyone says, I love God, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must, must also love his brother. Love for one another Forgiveness, charity, kindness, grace, bearing with each other, refusal to maintain anger or bitterness or malice against a fellow believer is one of the basic, non-negotiable hallmarks of truly following Christ. And if you refuse to forgive another if you refuse to deal with bitterness in your own heart or anger in your own heart with a fellow brother, the Word of God clearly states, and this might come as a shock, eternal life does not abide in you. And you are in danger of judgment. You are liable to the council, liable to the hell of fire. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with that? Or would you do whatever you must to reveal that salvation in you is real? Again, this is, according to Scripture, a basic litmus test for true salvation. True believers love one another and forgive one another. Self-deceived imposters refuse to forgive. Self-deceived imposters harbor bitterness and make, according to the Apostle Paul to Timothy, shipwreck of their faith. So knowing how serious this is, how ought we to deal with this bitterness and this anger? This is where Jesus goes next in verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So up to this point, Jesus has been talking in general terms. Everyone and whoever. But now he hones it in. He focuses on his hearers as individuals and moves from everyone to you. You see that? He is honing in on you this morning as an individual. Knowing the severe and perilous situation that our anger against a brother puts us in, Jesus hones in on us and tells us what we should do. 
If you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. You see, the Jews believed that making offerings put them in the right with God or that somehow it balanced the scales between uh, their, their, their sinful deeds, right? I could maintain my sin, but as long as I brought a bull or a goat and made a burnt offering to the Lord, all of it would be well. But Jesus here tells the crowds, there is no value to your worship. There is no value to your offerings if you perform them while holding on to some known sin like anger and bitterness toward a brother. Don't even begin the process of making that offering until you seek harmony and unity and agreement with your fellow believer. And this principle of dealing with sin before making your offerings is a common theme throughout the Old Testament. For example, through the prophet Isaiah, when speaking to disobedient, idolatrous Israel, whose hands, the text tells us, were full of blood, the Lord declared this in chapter 1, verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. In other words, the sin you maintain and the sin you refuse to repent of makes your offerings useless. Even worse, odious and repulsive in the sight of the Lord. In our day, It might be that you come to church harboring anger and bitterness towards a fellow believer and you come with your envelope neatly tucked in your front pocket to give your offering that day. Or you're watching from home and you've got your finger hovering over the mouse to give online. And Jesus here says, if you are living in bitterness and unforgiveness, don't bother. Keep it. Your offering takes a back seat to unity and reconciliation. Keep your offering in the front pocket of your shirt. Remove your fingers from the mouse and keep your offering. And every time you look at it, every time you think about it, may it be a continual reminder to you of the weightier matters of God's law. That love ought to exist between you and the believer against whom you bear hostility. May it remind you to get things right before you are called into the law courts of your God when it will be too late to set things right. Leave your gift before the altar and go. This is how highly... Our Lord values and esteems harmony and peace and love among His people. So much so that reconciliation takes precedence and priority over the performance of your religious duties. Dealing with unresolved conflict so that you can truly worship the Lord is an urgent matter. An urgent matter that outweighs your religious duties if you perform them that you might any duty you might perform while you're angry. Why leave your gift? Because your access to the Lord is hindered by your anger. In fact, your anger being maintained might reveal a lack of relationship with the Lord altogether. So, 
If you are truly committed to the Lord, if you are truly committed to worshiping Him in spirit and in truth, let me just tell you, you will do everything necessary to remove hindrances. Do not come to corporate worship until you are reconciled to your brother. Otherwise, it's all pretense. If you must, leave right now. The time for reconciliation is always now. Right now. First, be reconciled to your brother, whether you have something against them or you know that they have something against you, that they are holding some sort of grudge against you or anger against you. Go and deal with it and then come and offer your gift. You see, not only are we called to live at peace and in love with each other, not only are we called to put the death, the anger that is inside of us and to address that anger whenever it rears its ugly head in our own hearts, but we are also called to take active and positive steps to promote love in all of our relationships with fellow believers. Do you see that? If you know that somebody has something against you, you leave your gift and you go. Do you want to know who the mature Christian is? The one who doesn't care about who did what. The one who isn't concerned about who is to blame for this and who is to blame for that, but simply takes responsibility to initiate and fight for reconciliation, to fight for agreement. The mature Christian notes the anger that rises in the heart and immediately seeks to cut out any roots of bitterness upon which that anger might feed and grow into flower, whether it's in the heart of somebody else or in your own. And when you are reconciled, says Jesus, then come and offer your gift. Do it quickly. Verse 25 Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. The idea here is that every one of us must identify and deal with the anger, the sin of anger or the murder in the heart before we face the judge. This is how urgent this need is. It's to be done quickly. It's to be done without delay. It's to be done at once instead of sitting and stewing about the wrongs that you think have been committed against you. Focus on the fact that you yourself, as an individual, will have to stand before the great judge of heaven and earth and give an account for why you held on to that anger. And let me just say, none of your excuses are going to cut it. Harboring unforgiveness, all the while claiming to be his child. You get the hypocrisy of that, right? We claim to be the child of the one to for, who came to forgive us from an incalculable laundry list of sins that we committed against him. And yet, we won't seek reconciliation or, with a brother or forgive them. Come to terms quickly. Tomorrow is not guaranteed to you or to me. It's not guaranteed to any of us. Are you okay with entering eternity with anger against a fellow believer still lodged in your heart? Yikes. To refuse to ask the Lord to give you what you yourself will not give to another. 
or to refuse is to ask the Lord to give you what you yourself will not give to another, which is the height of hypocrisy. So come to terms quickly. Lest, verse 25 and 26, your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is a terrifying text. Jesus told the crowds that gathered before him that holding on to enmity and hostility, it will cost them. And he tells us this morning that holding on to anger and hostility and enmity with a fellow Christian will cost you. Unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven. Unless you strive for reconciliation, which is, by the way, our great witness in and to the world, it is our unity and our love for one another that imitates and displays the image of a God who is perfectly harmonious within his own triune self. Unless we are striving for unity and agreement, we reveal a lack of the Spirit in us. So let me ask you this question. Do you possess the Spirit of God? Have you truly been born again? Ask yourself, am I striving? Am I fighting against? Am I leaving my gifts and laboring to come to terms quickly with those towards whom I am bitter and angry? Or do I lodge and hold anger in my heart against others? If the answer is that you think you have the Holy Spirit in you, then prove it. Prove it. Do whatever it takes to establish true biblical harmony with your brothers and sisters in the faith. And if you won't, if you refuse to show mercy, if you are content to sit in and stew in your bitterness, the words of James apply to you this morning. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. If the matter is not settled and you find yourself before the judge, he will put you in prison. And you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Or in other words, you will never get out because you cannot pay the required debt. So if you are angry and bitter and at the same time claim to love Jesus, the words of our Lord here this morning to you ought to rattle you and shake you out of your stupor. They ought to strike fear in your heart. They ought to be agitating you, pulling at you, angering you. The Spirit ought to be in you right now witnessing to your spirit. Be reconciled to your fellow. Do all you can to bring about reconciliation. All you can. You ever notice how our efforts rarely seem to be enough? Our judo teachers are fond of saying, you can do five more push-ups. You can do five more push-ups. You can always do five more push-ups. Even when it feels like you couldn't possibly do any more, when your arms feel like they're just jello, you can do five more push-ups. You can always do more when it comes to reconciliation. 
Even when it seems like you can't possibly do any more, you can do five more push-ups. And listen to me. This is for your joy. This will increase your joy. It is only the lies of the devil and the deceitfulness of the flesh that lead us to believe that we will be more satisfied by remaining in a state of hostility and bitterness than we would be if we dealt with it. Your joy will be increased. Listen, let me make a guarantee to you this morning. I guarantee that your joy will increase as your relationships with your fellow brothers and sisters increase in harmony and peace and love and, and unity. I guarantee it. If you keep striving for reconciliation and the other person will not forgive, know this, the guilt of their sin rests on them and they are in danger of judgment. But as for you, you can do five more push-ups. You can do five more push-ups. We all require the internal witness and power of the Spirit to do this. None of you can do it on your own. None of you would want to do it on your own. I don't want to do it on my own. The Apostle Paul in Colossians 3 commanded the Colossian believers that they must put to death what is earthly in them those things that will bring the wrath of God. And here's the list in Colossians 3.8. You must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. How is it possible to follow such a seemingly impossible command? By turning to Christ in faith. By believing in Him who laid down His life, taking on Himself the penalty for your sin so that you might live. And when we believe in Christ, our Father in heaven delivers us from the domain of darkness in which we once lived and transfers us into the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. And as a result, you are filled with his Holy Spirit who then gives you the power to choose harmony, to choose reconciliation, to choose unity and love to choose to come to terms with your accusers. Do you believe in Christ? Are you a child of Christ's kingdom? Prove it. Come to terms quickly with those you are angry with, lest the judge sentence you to prison. There is still time. Let the Spirit of God reign in your heart and lead you to joy. Amen? Father, we praise you. We thank you for giving us these texts of warning. Lord, they're difficult. They're hard to, to grasp and to grip and to wrestle with. But we know that you give them to us because you are for our joy and because you love us. So Lord, I pray that the urgency of coming to terms with fellow brothers and sisters with whom we are angry would rest heavily upon our hearts. I pray that your spirit would be just pulverizing every one of us who is living in a state of bitterness and anger towards a fellow believer. I pray that you would help us to do five more push-ups. Even if we feel like we have done enough, even if we feel like we've done all that we can, even if our arms feel like they are jello, Lord, we know that your spirit can give us the effort or the energy and the ability to keep on going. And Lord, as we do, 
I pray for increased joy in you, increased delight in you, increased love for you, and may our efforts, who knows, may our efforts bring a number of people to the saving knowledge of your Son as they see the salt and the light that we are in this world. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen.